welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. Isham invites you to log on, listen, and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator, John Wood. Welcome to the Process This podcast. This is episode number 51. Thanks for joining me today. Now, we have another one-hour CE program for you today. So there is no time to mess around. So let's just get to it. Cue the music. The last 100 yards is an experience like no other, an in-depth series that focuses on different issues and topics in ways we never have before from a 360 perspective. Join me as we investigate topics affecting sterile processing and packaging with the help of scientists, manufacturers, engineers, and sterile processing professionals just like you. Partner with me and the KIPP committee as we explore the last 100 yards. Welcome back, members of the KIPP committee. This is episode number six in the series, The Last 100 Yards. Now, if you've missed some of the previous uh, 100-yard podcasts, please go back and listen to those. But this is an exciting one because today we're discussing the topic, external transport. Now, again, I'm excited about this topic because when you look in the current AMI standards, ST79 standards, in section 11, and it's titled Offsite Transport, there's not much information found there. There's not a lot of information to help folks and guide folks with external transport. I'd like to start off this show talking about the current state of external transport. Hey, this is Jody Eisenberg. I, um, I'll start this off. So um, I think one of the things that we found specifically in transporting reusable items, so think instruments, instrument trays, um, when we looked to the standards to see what was out there, what we found was, as John said, limited standards within Amy. Um, there was limited guidance around transporting sterile products outside the healthcare facility specifically in Amy, AORN, and OSHA. Um, And then there's some general guidelines about storage conditions or optimal storage conditions during transportation. But really, there's not a whole lot out there to help us in the industry understand what the best state is to transport those instruments that we've processed and are bringing to a sister organization or another facility or an ambulatory surgical site. Anybody have any additional to add? I think you summed it up pretty good, Jody, because as you said, there's really a lot of questions. How do we transport these devices? And sometimes we're overly cautious and sometimes we're kind of missing the mark. So as an industry, we really need to do some research and to provide guidance to healthcare facilities on how to properly transport the items. 
Yeah, you know, you you bring up a good point. I, I think about some of the um, situations that I'm come that I've come across in um, or hearing about how items have been transported um, or are being transported. And you know, as someone in healthcare focused on quality and patient safety, those situations scare me. You know, I I hear about um, organizations, um, people transporting things in the back of their car, in the back seat of their car. Sometimes those are those instrument trays are clean, and sometimes they're not. Um, and it makes me just wonder about, you know, we need to get people thinking about the appropriate way to handle those instrument trays, whether they're dirty, clean, or sterile. We need to get people thinking about the best way to transport them to protect the instrumentation. There's just so many untoward possibilities if not transported correctly. And and it is unfortunate that there's not a whole lot of guidance out there. There certainly are a lot of variables that we need to take into consideration. And this is Sue Classic here. So when we're transporting the items, we need to make sure that we maintain the integrity of the items. But another issue that's come up as we transport items is not just the integrity of the packaging, but also the device itself. Some medical device manufacturers were not aware that we send these products from hospital to hospital. And they're concerned with the vibrations of the equipment going over the public roadways. And so that's you know yet another issue that we need to address. Right. You know, I know one of the questions that we've come across in looking at how to best transport, and we get these questions from the infection preventionists at organizations, you know, not only just you know protecting that instrument from vibrations and shock and damage, but but also how are how are we making sure that those instruments, if if they're clean, that they're staying clean? How are we protecting them from contaminants? How are we protecting, if we're transporting dirty, how are we making sure that those instruments are being transported quickly enough so that that bioborden isn't fusing onto the instruments and then later, you know, causing issues for, you know, an unfortunate patient down the road? Yes, and when talking about the bioburden, the point of use treatment is that we have to have a damp towel or a pretreatment like foam on the instrumentation. In your experience, what have you done with that? Because I know you've done an awful lot with transporting devices from a hospital to a processing center. Do you have any recommendations for that, Jody? Sure. Sure. So what what's interesting is when we when we started out, we looked at those the, the current regulations that were out there, current standards or, or guidance really that was out there. And while we there were there were no hard and fast rules, we decided that we needed to probably err on a more conservative approach for transporting than not. So we set up a vehicle that was environmentally conditioned. So that vehicle was insulated. It had uh, it, it has. Um, uh, air conditioning, so um, HVAC system that can generate heat or cooling depending on the um, outside temperature. We put in that vehicle shelving with a lip on the shelving so that when we put the instrument trays in there, they couldn't move. We also invested in shelf 
padding, just simple toolbox grade lining, liner that would help minimize the, the vibrations, but also minimize the slips. And, you know, it's interesting, we, we did do um, some studies and we, we found that by using this, this environmentally controlled vehicle, we were able to keep a consistent temperature and humidity within that vehicle. What we did find though, is that there were some deviations and those were some of the questions we got. Okay, so how long are the deviations? What's the impact on the deviation, you know, when the temperature is out or the humidity is out? And so, you know, we did some some further testing around that. I will also say, I think packaging matters in transport. We chose, um, we were transporting reusable instruments. We transported those instruments in a tray the tray was placed in a rigid container, which for dirty instruments, that's a, a requirement of AORN, we transport dirty as well as clean. So both were transported within a rigid container. We further took that rigid container and we covered it in a dust cover. We just, we had a, a clear eight mil protective plastic bag. And this really was, was more just to protect the contents from the environment, so moisture, dust, um, lint during external transport. And we did it too, knowing that we would be taking it from a sterile area to a vehicle, from the vehicle to an organization. So there was changes in that environment. We wanted to make sure that the inside contents was protected thoroughly. So I have a question about that. The you speak about the like dust cover that you're using. What were sort of like the requirements of that dust cover? Did you need it to be any sort of moisture barrier or oxygen barriers, or is it just enough that it, you know, minimizes particulate? Do you know, it's, it's funny that you ask that. I, I think one of the reasons we, so when we first started down this road of transporting clean and dirty and sterile, we gathered a group of industry professionals and you know they said they said think about using this this plastic dust cover if you will and it, it really was twofold um, mostly just to protect from those particulates but it was also a way for us to cover the container and then label it accordingly so it was covered and labeled with a green clean and then when we picked it up, it had the biohaz stickers. So that helped us to comply with any DOT rec regulations that were out there when we were transporting dirty. In our studies, we ended up showing that the plastic barrier did more than, and we can talk about that in a little bit, it actually did more than protect from the particulates. It actually protected it protected the inside contents from change in temperature and humidity, which was really, really interesting. Hey, Jody, I'm interested in, you said that you used shelf liners and how did the shelf liners help with the vibration? Did you notice, like what kind of changes did you notice when you used the shelf liners? Yeah, um, interesting. So we, we basically used just, you know, toolbox grade, shelf liner from Home Depot. So think about, you know, the shelf liner that you that you put on, you know, in your kitchen cabinets, a little bit of rubber, little padding. 
So it, 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 it wasn't real, it wasn't a real thick pad, but basically what it, what it helped do was it helped to decrease the amount of vibration. It also decreased that, or it, it prevented that tray from sliding you know, back and forth on that shelf. So it, it really provided stabilization during, during transport. Um, one of the tests that we did is we actually tested inclination and shock over normal road. We, we took the vehicle out on rougher roads. And then we also, you know, monitored if we were crossing train tracks or large potholes. And we really found that shock does have a major impact on the the contents and and what we found i want to say that kind of normal road we looked at the g-force and and just to give you an idea so if you're weightless the g-force is zero when we're walking you know on the ground every day our g-force is equal to about one and so what we found during normal road conditions, the inclination and shock to that instrument tray was somewhere between one and four G-force. As we got into rougher roads and, and large potholes, it went as high as eight G-force. So, so using those pads, what we showed in our data was there was actually over a 90% reduction in shock events for that, that instrument tray. So now I want you to think about the instrument tray that's placed in the trunk of a car that gets transported. Mm -hmm. No, you know, it, can't guarantee that there's a pad, you know, isn't stabilized. Just think about, and depending on the type of car, we, we, actually did studies with two different types of vehicles or three different types of vehicles. You know what? There's there's a big difference in that inclination and shock on those on those trays. Jody, do you recall the difference between a car trunk and a van as far as the shock goes? And, and also, did you look at the temperature and humidity, the, the variations between the two? Sure. Kathy, do you want to talk a little bit about the, the dynamic testing that we did and, and what we found? Yeah, um, this is Kathy. So when doing the testing, we actually realized and we captured data that the small car, uh, car trunk captured higher events inside the trace than the SUV. And one of the reasons is, is because there's uh, the car is smaller and um, the uh, the data that we obtain uh, show us that we have about like an 81% higher uh, uh, results uh, putting the trays without any padding in uh, in the back of the trunk. Yeah, I think the data actually showed that in the smaller car, there was actually I, I want to say it was like seven times more inclination Correct. shock events than in that SUV. Did you happen to notice that there was a big variation in the temperature and humidity between the SUV and a, the back of a car? Yes. Um, so the uh, when you think of a van or an SUV, um, the temperature, the trunk is kind of open. And in a trunk um, of a small car, the, uh, the trunk is closed. So the temperature is really much higher in a, in a temperature of a small car than comparing to an SUV. 
and in a, specifically when you have higher uh, temperature days, like in the summer days, the temperature in a small car, in the, the tray that is in the trunk of a car, can actually reach over 100 degrees. And when we capture the temperature, uh, we put sensors within the tray and within the trunk, and we compare that to the outside temperature. It was amazing to see that the temperature within the trunk, it was actually higher than the one outside, uh, you know, with the records that we collected. You know, I also, oh, go ahead. I was just saying that is amazing. Go yeah, ahead. I also like to bring up the fact, so we used a tool, um, mean kinetic temperature. This tool is used mostly in the pharma industry as well as the, the food industry. And we used it to assess temperature excursion. So when the temperature well outside of, of the established tolerance, the mean kinetic temperature allowed us really to see the stability of that across time. And this tool is in alignment with um, USP 659. And I think it's a it's a tool that I think in, in sterile processing and specifically in transporting these uh, instrument trays, I, I think we think about using that tool because it, it does allow you to justify limited time excursions primarily in that environmentally controlled vehicle because that's really where we were able to show stability in temperature and humidity. And I know some of you, I know Austin, you have some experience with MKT. Love to hear your, you know, your view on that. Yeah, definitely. I'm sorry. I'm actually not familiar with MKT. Um, what's that stand for? Uh, mean kinetic temperature tool? Ah, gotcha. Yeah, so um, in a past life, I had from a supporting medical device manufacturers um, looked into different climactic conditioning standards. Um, so for instance, some of the standards uh, manufacturers use are like ASTM D4332. I think it's F2825 just to prove climactic stress. So what we do is before we do what we call shake, rattle, roll testing, drops, uh, vibration testing, high altitude chambers, et cetera, we subject uh, packaging systems, meaning protective packaging, sterile barrier systems in the devices um, in its box or tertiary package configuration to climactic stresses. So. Imagine, you know, the dead of winter in Michigan or Alaska, um, something kind of like a desert environment, um, maybe in Arizona, and then maybe in the middle of the summer in Texas, you know, something that's hot and humid at the same time. After that, we subsequently do drops, vibration testing, et cetera, to condition the packaging systems and then subject the sterile barriers to integrity testing to verify maintenance of sterility um, after handling and uh, transportation hazard modes. You know, one interesting fact about climatic zone, um, Austin, is that as part of our study, um, we follow the requirements of ASHRAE 170 for temperature and humidity, but also we did some research uh, about the background of the requirements for room temperature and, uh, and uh, control room temperature. So we actually found that according to the International Conference of Harmonization or ICH, for stability studies, um, the U.S. actually follows under climatic zone two, which requires that the temperature conditions be maintained under uh, 25 plus or minus two Celsius with a relative humidity um, of 60% plus or minus five. 
So based on that, we realized that, you know, there are requirements that we have to follow. But also we know that sometimes you won't really have that, you know, you will have deviations, you will have excursions. And that's what we actually search more about other standards out there that is used within the U.S. Uh, in the world. And we found USB 659. And with that, you know, that um, a USB uh, states that uh, you can maintain your control uh, temperature at a, at a certain uh, criteria, but also allows excursions if you use the, the mean kinetic temperature. And, and this tool is really um, a calculation that, that we use or people use or in you know, industries use to assess those excursions. And if that actually is this tool that the mean kinetic temperature can be used by the sterile processing world, it would actually help to really assess that, yeah, you can accept that you can have deviations, but you can actually, you know, use this tool to document those. Yeah, Abby, what's that, I was going to say, Go that ASHRAE 170, that is for typically like storage within a facility, right? The standards that Austin was mentioning, those are ones that we, as medical device manufacturers, we test our product to, products that are, you know, clean or sterile before they even get to the user because through transport it is very difficult to maintain 20 degrees c or 25 degrees c texas in the summer or alaska in the winter if we don't have control over the trucks and stuff so typically what austin was mentioning is that's our that's from the medical device manufacturer when it's on its way to the hospital or the healthcare facility before it's been soiled or anything. Right, and what we're talking about is those reusable items. So those, those instruments that we are processing more than once. And there is no, there is no guidance out there. So yep. um, we were, we're kind of building on what is existing to try and tell the story, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And, you know, for us, like we're because we're focusing on our end a lot of times on the transport side of it, our testing, you know, might be for up to 72 hours that we are conditioning these products to to show that the product in the packaging doesn't degrade through those conditions to a point right. where it would be unsafe for the product or um, incur any safety risks. But it, we don't take into account when it's, you know, a processed item that has to then be repackaged or any of that. And and even for the products, how many times it sits in that excursion. And I think that's, that's really good information to have. And if that MKT tool allows to allow us to understand like how long that excursion cumulative of the device it, it can have, those are great. And that's great for information for us and medical device manufacturers. So we can design around that. Yeah, so we just, I mean, we've tipped the iceberg. So we have we have that, we have some of that data and, and we really have to go back and study more. But I, I know I sit on the TIR 109 work group and you know I, I know that different people have opinions on whether or not you should be monitoring temperature and humidity and moisture and dew point and, and all of that when transporting these reusable devices. And we took the stance that yes, you should be monitoring, but the, the pushback largely has been, well, we can't monitor and, and be expected to address every single deviation. I think this MKT tool allows us to really justify that deviation and come up with 
what is that time frame? And it's going to be different based on the outside conditions, based on those climactic conditions. So, you know, it, it might be six hours in the Midwest in the fall, but it might be, you know, two hours in Texas and in, in, you know, in the heat of the summer. So, but the tool really allows you to understand those deviations and those that that time frame of those deviations that's what we found very interesting and very enlightening the reason why we also choose usp 659 is because there is a caveat there within the, the standard that says that this could be applied to um, storage and transportation facilities within hospitals as well and and that really is what really drives us to to choose this so that we could share it with you know with the industry And is this for processed products, like they've already been processed or products that are currently soiled? So for this particular study that we did, we looked at clean and then we looked at sterile. So we did not look at, at any dirty instruments, but these were instruments that were in their, packaged in their tray. Some were, we, we did not, We did not use anything that was considered soiled or, or dirty. I think this tool is interesting because I remember working in Texas or just living in Texas. I would go to the grocery store. I would buy a, a loaf of bread, put it in my car. And when I got home, you could see from the plastic wrapper that there was all kinds of condensate inside the package. And so I often wondered, you know, what is that doing to the instrument trays that we're transporting. You know, we have no idea sometimes, right? So I, th I think this is a very interesting tool. Right. Yeah, and the materials that you're using can definitely change that. So like what you're describing, John, I mean, that that plastic was that was selected was not selected based on any sort of, of a moisture barrier, probably. So if that's something sure. that would benefit these products, those are things that we can help to guide those dust covers. You know, if you need a moisture vapor or moisture barrier, if you need a oxygen barrier, if you need one of those, there are materials out there that that can work for that. And and what was really interesting is just even with, I mean, we didn't have the, you know, Taj Mahal of, you know, dust covers. We had, you know, a simple eight mil dust cover, um, pretty standard. And what we did find was that the, the temperature and humidity within those trays, even during that deviation, were able to maintain temperature and humidity for a longer time in the environmentally controlled vehicle. So the vehicle that was insulated and you know, even when it was parked outside, it was insulated, it was able to hold that temperature and humidity within range for a longer amount of time. Car and the SUV that we tested, even with the packaging, the deviations, it was not able to hold temperature and humidity for as long of a time. So we really found that packaging and placement in a specific type of vehicle really matters. The other thing that we also found is that We always, uh, when you look at the standards, you always think of uh, temperature and humidity only, but our um, data included uh, uh, evaluating the dew point and moisture would actually have an effect also when you transport and how you transport 
and the assessment that we use uh, allow us to really uh, gather data for dew point and moisture within the transportation uh, period of these uh, trays. I've gotten questions from people saying, or comments, I should say, comments from people saying when they transport the items that there's really no way to measure the temperature and humidity, but yet Jody and Kathy, you're able to do that and you're able to present really good firm data. Can you talk about how you measure the temperature and humidity and even the shock and also the moisture? Sure. So, we, so I'll, let, I'll let Kathy talk about the, the, the devices. We did some, some investigation when we started uh, um, out. And so Kathy can talk about the devices we used and how they were validated. Yeah, so we actually did a research, as Jody mentioned, of different devices, and we found one in particular that was able to capture the temperature, the humidity, the dew point, and the moisture uh, within, you know, your um, your facility or your, your transport. And uh, we actually went farther than that, and uh, we actually validated that. And uh, we did some studies for a few months. Uh, actually, took almost a year of doing looking at the different times of uh, uh, data from the winter time, the fall, the spring, the summer. And, uh, and that was able to really, was a very useful data to capture, you know, the different deviations when, when the humidity is low, when your temperature is high, and how all of them depend on each other. And you were looking at the dew point. Correct, yeah. And the dew point is basically, you know, how much moisture you have in the air and the higher the DuPont values equals to the greater amount of moisture in the air. And also by measuring the moisture, which is the amount of uh, the water vapor, um, mm -hmm. that actually indicates that uh, your humidity is higher. So whenever you think that, uh, oh my God, it's like the humidity is so high, but also the moisture is going so high and that's what it creates the, the condensation uh, on, your, uh, um, on your product, on your trays that you're transporting, especially in those vehicles that are not uh, control, um, have a control environment. So yeah, I guess oh, go ahead. with the excursions that you guys were um, studying, what is the effect of the excursion or was that determinable from the results um, yet? Yeah, so so I'll, I'll give you some examples of temperature excursions. So, you know, we had our, our van, um, the the environmentally controlled vehicle, we, we had that parked outside it was closed for a little over two hours. And um, what we found was the van did a really good job of maintaining the tray temperature under the required 75 degrees. And, and using the, the MKT, we were able to see that for that entire two hours, it was maintained. When we when we left the vehicle out um, with the door closed for six hours and there was a higher temperature, the temperature within the tray did rise, but it rose slower than that tray that same tray that was in an SUV or um, the car that we that we were studying as well. So, there definitely was, you know, there definitely was a difference. The interior temperature of the trays were significantly higher than the temperature outside in the SUV versus in the van. It really kind of stayed within range and below the outside temperature in the environmentally controlled vehicle. So it, it really helped, in our mind, helped us prove that 
the better vehicle to transport is that environmentally controlled, that it, it does matter where you're placing, you know, your product. Same with, same with humidity. What we found in the environmentally controlled vehicle was the humidity inside the trays, really those were maintained within the parameters while in the, you know, in the SUV and, and the trunk of the vehicle, they actually in the trunk and in the and then SUV the humidity rose slightly but it it didn't it wasn't terrible and then we went back to our hypothesis there was that perhaps it was really due to the the sealed nature of the rigid container and that's not something i mean we did not you know we weren't testing the the stability of that of that seal at all but that was kind of what we why we thought the humidity within the tray wasn't as variable, if that makes sense. Sure. And, and just to help clarify, um, what is defined as a tray here? Is it a kind of a hermetic seal um, that, you know, cat and I might be used to um, coming from a manufacturer or is this kind of a, a loosely wrapped tray? Um, no, it's a it so it there's a, a you know a rubber ring around. It's a sealed rigid container. Um, I wouldn't say it's hermetically sealed, but it is. It's very commonly used in in sterile in the sterile processing industry. So this mm -hmm. this is how many of many of the organizations sterilize their their trays within these rigid containers, rather than wrapping them in blue wrap. It's just an alternative for for that. Interesting. Um, another thing, you know, as a packaging engineer that comes to mind, how, what is seen in terms of the length of travel? Um, is it a hundred miles, a thousand, you know, five miles? Um, yeah. so, what are you guys so commonly seeing? That's the big question. So, you know, we know that there are organizations out there now that are, um, they're centrally processing for their systems. And so, you know, think about, I, I know University of Iowa is a system that has a, a central processing facility for their system. The, the amount of travel, I, I'm, you know, I, I don't know, you know, what the, what the distance, the furthest distance is for their, their delivery of sterile. But then you think about like the manufacturers who are delivering loaner trays you know, sometimes those are being transported from, you know, state to state. So it, it could be a long transport, you know, in a car or in another vehicle. And in most cases, these are not sterile trays. These are, you know, clean instruments that are being delivered to the facility to then decontam and sterilize on their own. But, you know, I don't know the, the, what the average time i can tell you with our organization our goal was to minimize our travel to a perimeter of 60 miles so you know 60 miles there 60 miles back you know if we're traveling so we're traveling 60 miles you know we're in chicago metro area 60 miles could be it could be you know an hour and a half and on a good day or it could be three hours in traffic so you know we looked at time as well as distance mm -hmm. did you also look at um when you were transporting you had some peel pack items also i would assume you know we didn't oh you didn't 
We we didn't. We just we we were specifically looking at the transport of of instrument trays. Um, I do know that there are. Um, I think there's others in the KIP group that are looking at transport of soiled, and they yes. might be looking at a variety of you know packaging for the soiled. I'm not sure though. We we specifically did just the instrument trays in the rigid container and then wrapped in the plastic wrap. And maybe back to the transport, is it is it internal hospital systems transporting or is it you know UPS um, small parcel carriers? And then more specifically, is there a defined shipping window, so to speak? So only at 8 a.m. or only at 3 p.m. the truck leaves the the dock. I can only talk speak to what I've you know I've seen in the industry. In most cases, those systems, you know, they they either have their own, you know, courier system, you know, that is facility owned. Um, there are some some organizations out there that specifically courier their medical couriers. Um, now, I don't know the differentiation. We have heard that there are some transport companies out there that will do the temperature and humidity monitoring. But I think, you know, your guess is as good as mine. I personally think our study and the questions that we asked and the answers that we came up with, and as I said at the beginning, this is the tip of the iceberg. Looking at this data just makes me ask more questions and want to do more studies. But I think what what it does is the good thing, and I, I hope this is what folks in the industry take away, that we need to really ask questions. Is this the right way to transport this? Is this the, you know, if, is, do I have the right conditions to protect my instruments so that when they're in, they get delivered to the OR and they're being used on a patient, I've done everything that I can to make sure that they are absolutely in working order, sterile and um, ready to go. So, uh, Austin, also in regards to your question about how items are transported, oftentimes it's within the system. And sometimes, you know, what has happened is a sister hospital or a hospital across the street needs an instrument now. And I hear stories that some people just jump in their car and take it over. Maybe security does. I've heard of Uber and also taxis. Also, uh, as we've been going down this path of external transport, I've asked a lot of people about their stories, how you transport. And believe it or not, in one location, they actually transport sterile items using a dog sled in the winter time. Wow. I know. A a dog sled? A dog sled, yes. Yes, it was a very remote area. So Jody, you couldn't find standards for that, huh? <laughs> wow. The other story I heard, this gentleman was from the service and we were talking about external transportation and he was telling me how when he was in the service, they would drop medical supplies out of a helicopter. So that's definitely, a, a, I'm sure that wasn't monitored mm. so well. I probably yeah. failed an impact shock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. and when I was asking, we said, well, we didn't think about the shock or the temperature or the humidity. We were just thinking about getting the supplies there. Yeah. But I think well, we do have an awful lot of work to do <laughs> with external yeah. transportation. Because as you see, it's 
all around the board, but it sounds like Jody and Kathy, you've done so much work on this and you have a lot of really great data that we can use. Yeah, yeah I think the fact is that when we started this study and, and thinking about the company and what we do is that, you know, the only thing that we found is like temperature and humidity and that's it. But we started like doing some brainstorming with the team and we realized that there is much more to that. You know, you have other non-regulated parameters like moisture, dew point, and then shock, right? Nobody yep. thinks about shock, but you you, you got to think about it. And that's where we were able to get this other sensor that actually captured that kind of data. And it was just amazing to find, you know, how much that affects whatever you're transporting, especially when you think about a patient, right? So at the end of the day, it's that. It's not we're transporting your, your box of uh, cookies in the car, but it's actually transporting something that is going to be used for that patient. So that was actually a critical and important data that we were able to collect. Yeah, and I, I will say we we focused on the transport of instruments, um, you know, mostly in trays. So think about orthopedic instruments. We didn't test like scope transport. And, and think about when you order a brand new scope and it gets shipped to you from the manufacturer, or delivered to you from the manufacturer, it is packaged. It's in styrofoam or foam. It, it's it's mm -hmm. When you get it, that scope was placed in a box, in some foam, in another box, in a bag. There's no way that's moving. And now we're actually seeing organizations and talking, you know, talking about being able to transport those scopes from organization to organization. I think we need to think about what's the appropriate way to transport. And I think it needs to be, I'm, I'm not saying don't transport it. When you look at Europe, Europe, their main model is decentralized trans sterilization and transport to facilities. Most organizations rely on some sort of a central processing plant. So, you know, I, I do think that it's a way for the healthcare industry to gain some efficiency in, you know, sterile processing and also use of instruments, you know, you know, getting them to be used um, more for more patients. But we've got to ask the right questions and make sure that we're putting together a process that actually protects those, those instruments so that when they are used on patients, they're not creating some downstream effect. Sounds like you've done a lot of really good work on that. Yeah, our hope is to to bring this to TIR 109, but also to get some of this data published so that we can really share it more broadly. And, you know, again, I'll say, I'll say again, it's, it's, you know, just the tip. My hope that it is that we continue to dig and continue the studies so that we can really start to show the, the benefits of transporting these these instruments these reusables in this way i was just curious um you know we've talked a lot about tir 109 um maybe from maybe to help kat and i could you guys go into a little bit of what what that standard is or, or technical information report sure i can take this one so tir 109 is for external transport transport of healthcare processed items and we are currently in the drafting stage uh, we're working on the second draft so we're still re reviewing some of the comments so in this tir we're addressing both sterile items sterile and clean items transport 
and also contaminated because we need guidance in both of them. There's really not a whole lot of data. Now, Jody and Kathy have done a phenomenal job on bringing together some information, but we're, we're, we are looking at research, what's currently out there. Many members of the committee also are with ASTM and also on the ISO group. So we have a lot of really good representation there. We have manufacturers, um, users, um, healthcare facilities are considered as users. So it is a consensus document. And since it's a TIR, that means it's a technical information report. This is not a standard, but rather technical information that healthcare facilities can use. So we do have some guidance on how to safely transport these items. When we're transporting our clean and sterile items, obviously we want to maintain the integrity of them. When we transport uh, contaminated items, we certainly have to follow the OSHA and the Department of Transportation regulations. So we're including that in this TIR. All information that people need to know. And like uh, Jody and Kathy had mentioned, we didn't know what we didn't know. They certainly brought out a lot of really good information from their research study, and I'm sure that'll be included in this TIR. So I, I guess we've we've heard a lot of um, good context over this podcast series. Um, how how can this these studies or conclusions or results of the studies be, I, I guess, fed into these TIRs? Well, we need to um, document the research in peer-reviewed journals, such as um, the AORN journal. By having them peer-reviewed, it's really good to have that second set of eyes, and it gives the study much more credibility. These studies in the research is then submitted to these TIRs, typically in the form of a comment. So the researcher or somebody who reviews the study would put it, will put a comment into the TIR listing both where it should go um, and justifying why it should be in there and the rationale behind it. And when we meet at, during the committee meetings, we go over every comment word by word and the committee you know, reviews it and discusses should it be included in the document, in this case, the TIR or not. And oftentimes we'll even change the wording of it. Again, it's a consensus document, but what's really good is as it's submitted, there's a room full of experts looking at every word to make sure that it's actually accurate and users are in the room to make sure that it's usable, that it's feasible to use within a healthcare facility. Well, I have a question about transporting of soiled instrumentation. And I'm not sure if you've talked about this in the TIR or not, but you know, with scopes, particularly endoscopes, you know, there's a delayed processing you know, after so long that uh, a scope is, after it's been used, you know, when it comes into the decontamination room and it, and if it's, you know, above an hour for some models, you know, there's delayed processing. Is there anything like that for just your normal standard instrumentation? Is there any talk about that? Well, there's actually a research project going on now where they're looking at uh, blood on instruments in this research project's looking at both flat stainless steel surfaces and those that can that have um, like an indentation that could cause a pooling effect. And this research is looking at the temperature and humidity for it, it's time related. I don't have the results back. I know the research is going on now, but again, they're looking at you know the type of material. Uh, I'm sorry, the design of a stainless steel instrument and the temperature. 
uh, humidity and the time variations. So it's very interesting. I don't have the results of that back yet. That's a good point. So yeah, I think I've heard rumblings of that one um, as well. Kathy or Jody, are, are you guys working with that um, research group? So they're part of um, they're part of the KIP group. Um, I think one of our one of our members is is doing that um, in a lab. We're not we're not participating in that, um, but we're very interested in the results. Yeah, she's almost finished with the results. She has a whole she's actually working with a whole team. And the plans are that uh, the results of the study will be published and uh, will also be presented. Um, she's putting out some, she's also submitting for proposals to speak on this. So it will be out soon. Um, I'm not sure when though, but she's definitely there will be a research article written and presentations given. Yeah, and I think, I mean, you know, we, there is a, a requirement, a recommendation, if you will, to, you know, pre-treat um, instruments, you know, immediately after use. Unfortunately, you know, we've seen that it's across the board. Um, I think the industry is better than it once was, but I, I do think that there still are there still are issues out there. Um, and some of the things that you know we've seen, I've seen in um, in facilities, the amount of time that even even the amount of time that those instruments are sitting waiting to be decontamined. And I'm not talking about transport in a car, just transport from the OR to the SPD. I, I think that this study will really help to inform the industry the the true impact of that that time on that bio burden. And, yes. um, you know, not only does it I mean, then you end up just cleaning the bio burden, but it, it also ruins your instruments. And then you end up with these expensive instruments that are aren't the way that they need to be in order for you to do, you know, to provide patient care. It's interesting you say that because she is looking at the surface structure of the instruments as yeah. the blood is allowed to dry on them. And she is seeing some defects in the instrumentation because of the blood. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. It is. And so important. So I've got a, a question for Austin or Kat, you know, from the engineering side. So we talked about uh, packaging of instruments, you know, being transported. So you bring in packaging and you, un you know, you're that secondary and tertiary packaging. If you unwrap that and pull out the sterile product, but then another facility down the road needs that product, is there any testing from that point that you guys do uh, to ensure that that packaging can still be sterile in that transport? Yeah, so most of our studies are done on the packaging system, which includes that tertiary packaging. So. We don't typically do that study. Um, there are some tests for electrical products that require the product to be dropped outside of its package. I believe it's an IEC maybe 60601 that does require some of those. And it, I think it's from as, as high as like a table distance, but it's one drop. And then they use the product as, as they would. There's nothing from a packaging standpoint that we are testing sterility. So it would just that I'm aware of. It's just the one functional test for a medical electrical product. If it's a non-electrical product, 
it doesn't go through that to my understanding. Unfortunately, you know, when we're, our standards only go so far as getting the device in its packaging system to the user, to the healthcare facility. And then there's, and which is the big part of this group within KIPP is that last hundred yards, because there's the gap of get it to the user. And then the user has to be able to, you know, aseptically present it at time of use. But there's all this that we're learning is going on in between receipt of the product at the healthcare facility to when it's actually mm -hmm. being used. And there's all this additional transport that's going on, additional handlings, all sorts of stuff that we're really trying to figure out where all those gaps are in our in our design and test and testing. Yeah, were you aware that in healthcare facilities we were transporting them between facilities once we received these devices? Nope. <laughs> I sure was not. That's it's just not something that when we even go to our uh, packaging for med device, when we go to those conferences, it's, it's not even really brought up. Um, so I think it's it's a big educational opportunity that we have is we need to we need to design for that. We need to develop these things. You know, I remember I think it was Jody you mentioned that the the products they get like those scopes they get foam or something in them. Yeah, that's we design that foam specifically so that the foam can absorb the shock and not the product. But knowing that when you take it out of that packaging because you need to sterilize it prior to use, that stuff gets thrown away. Well, when you're having to transport it in between places, now what's protecting it? Exactly. Um, so that's something that we need to get better about, I think, on, on both sides of, you know, is that something that maybe that packaging for those reusable products, some of it can you know, that's especially product specific, you know, where it's molded for that product to keep it from incurring any of that shock or that vibration. Some of those, maybe there's a way, I know space is limited, but you know, is it something that it can be reserved for when it has to be shipped? Uh, yeah. Cause it's absolutely like what, what is occurring to the product functionality after all of that vibration? How long is that device continued to be good for i mean does yeah. the manufacturer still say it's good for four years five years and those are the questions that we need to ask and you, you bring up another as you were talking about function of that of that medical device i know in the position of a central um an off-site sterilizer so off-site contract sterilizer we were held to a quality management system, you know, of the manufacturer. So, you know, we went through ISO 13485 to make sure that mm -hmm. we were appropriately handling their instruments, mostly the loaner instruments. And mm -hmm. it, when I think about how those are handled in the in the healthcare facilities, and and this isn't all, but in, in many cases, and this is kind of worst case scenario with the loaners. So we know there's an issue with loaner instruments. They get delivered, you know, just in the nick of time. Um, and they have, the organization has just enough time to, you know, decontam, sterilize them and get them ready for the next day's surgery. They get them in the afternoon, they process them overnight. They're ready for that 7 a.m when do they do the form fit and function testing even the minimal 
form fit and function mm -hmm. testing. And in some organizations, you know, and we have SPD technicians who go above and beyond and, and do a great job. But in many cases, they don't have the time nor the capacity to do everything that they need to do. And so, you know, how are we creating a system or a process that supports doing the right thing, making it the easiest thing to do? Absolutely. Because I mean, and you know, you all know, you can't sterilize the product before, you know, after you receive it, sterilize the product so it's ready to use, but then test it because now you've, you've compromised that sterile barrier. So exactly. you really only have the time yeah. when you're setting up. And at that point, if you only have the one, if it doesn't function, what happens? Exactly. Right? You have a, so you it, have a surgeon who's upset. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, and that's potentially too late, right? Like that's definitely too late to be finding that out. So it's, it, it's an interesting place that we're in now and trying to, and trying to develop that system, like you mentioned. Yeah, there's definitely opportunities. And, and, and I also think about, so, you know, as somebody who's spent most of her time in a hospital setting, we've focused a lot of time and attention on surgical site infections. And I do believe that there is opportunity here in what we're talking about for us to take a look at this process to make sure that we, the sterile processing community, the transport community, aren't contributing to the SSIs. Absolutely. I, was, I just had like the one last question is, you know, we went through all of this and we talked about the current state and how all this is um, occurring. I guess Sue kind of mentioned it, right? She asked if we were aware of what's going, of this occurring. So I guess my question is, is this new? Is this a new um, hazard that we're facing now? Or is this just a more common um, occurrence that's going on? And if it's more common, what spurred this uptick? in the use of this like external transport? I'll answer, I'll, I'll answer from my perspective. Oh. I, I, think, I think what we're seeing, you know, so the organizations who have created their own central facility, like University of Iowa, UPenn, Vanderbilt, they, they're doing it primarily as a point of efficiency. I mean, they, they've recognized that, you know, rather than have, I mean, they have you know, 12 facilities in a system, rather than have 12 fully functioning SPDs, why not take a majority of that, centralize it? You'd still have your S SPDs at those facilities, but mm -hmm. you take the, the large capacity and, and bring it, you know, centralize it. You, you increase your efficiency, you increase, increase your capacity, you increase the ability to turn those, those equipment. So, you know, I, I think that's, you know, that's what's happening. So there's an up, uptick for efficiency purposes. I, I believe so. I believe that's a driver. And this is a very popular model. This has been in place in Europe for a long time. Okay. So, you know, I think we're a little bit behind the times. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. You just read I my would, mind if I was going to ask that. <laughs> yeah. I would be really interested to know if the, at the onset of this model that, you know, you mentioned that Europe may have had or has had prior to the U.S., was any testing done on how the additional transport affects product functionality? Um, you know, we're we're on the side now of trying to understand how can we package it better because this is happening. But before these systems go in and they make this major change, 
are they doing anything to ensure that we're not creating a hazardous situation for the product or um, potential product failures by increasing that vibration or that shock that's going on? I think the shock is something we just recently started taking into consideration during the transport. But yeah. um, yes, Kent, back to your original question, how long has this been going on? When I started many, many years ago, um, we did, we transported some items between the hospitals, not a whole lot, but we did some, but it seems to be evolving more and more. And also, um, like if you're, if a fellow hospital needs an item, we'll get it to them no matter how, how we have to do it. You know, like I said, somebody mm -hmm. may jump in their car and take it or have security take it over, whatever the case may be. But we've done it to a smaller portion for a while. But in like Jody saying more and more, this is becoming the model. And also there are some items that we're trying to, as an industry, take from high level disinfection and move into sterilization. The sterilizers cost a lot of money. And so for that reason, some of these items, you know, if it's an offsite processing facility, they may send the item to the main hospital to be sterilized because the offsite, you know, the clinic may just not have a need for a sterilizer for one or two items. Again, the sterilizers are pretty expensive and it's an expertise mm -hmm. to run the sterilizers. So for that reason, those items may be going to a hospital. So there's, once again, more of an increase of that. Okay. So you guys have given us some great information. Thank you for your insight into external transport. And thank you for your participation in this Last 100 Yards podcast series. Thanks to everyone on the KIPP committee and thanks to everyone who has participated in the last 100 yard series. Process this podcasters. Episode 51 is in the books. Thanks for listening to the show. To receive the CE for this episode, simply click on the link in the episode notes. From here, you'll be redirected to the Isham Learning Center. So go ahead and register if you haven't already. Mark the podcast as completed and select the code MOISTURE. Again, the code for this episode is MOISTURE. Before we go, Thanksgiving is right around the corner. So from the Isham staff and your board of directors, we wish you and your family a happy Thanksgiving. Remember, keep an ear out for the next episode always on the 1st and 15th of every month. Each episode's on demand, so when you're ready for us, we'll be there for you. As always, stay classy, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>